This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas and educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Elite schools help reproduce the capitalist class. The sons and daughters of the wealthy go to elite schools to gain networks and receive education that helps maintain their social status in the future. My guest today, Karen Lilly, has looked at this process in an elite school in Switzerland, which enrolls students from around the world. She finds that students are in the process of becoming part of the transnational capitalist class, while also maintaining their national identities in interesting ways. The literature basically says that forming a transnational elite class requires um, shared interests, and those shared interests are often in mobility, global opportunities, wealth accumulation on a global scale, which then give rise to a sense of class commonality. And I think the case of LES shows that these shared interests can also coexist with real power relations that are enacted within an elite group. Karen Lilly recently finished her PhD at the University College London focused on the processes of transnational class formation. Starting in October, she will be a postdoctoral researcher at the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Societies in Cologne, Germany. Her latest article is entitled Multi-Sided Understandings, Complicating the Role of Elite Schools in Transnational Class Formation, which was published by the British Journal of Sociology of Education. Karen Lilly, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So can you describe for listeners the Lysen American School? Like, what does it look like? Yeah. Um, so let's start with its geographic location. Uh, so LES, as it's referred to, um, is in the French-speaking part of Switzerland, which is, you know, broadly in the Lake Geneva region. I think the best way to paint a picture of its location is to describe how I would get to the school. Um, so I would fly into Geneva take a two-hour train ride around the lake to the other end, and then switch to a cog train um, whose line was built at the end of the 19th century and which goes up the Bernoose Mountain. Uh, the Bernoose Mountain is part of the Bernese Alps. So we're already in the Alpine region of Switzerland in the French-speaking part. Then after 30 minutes and 1,500 meters on this cog train, uh, I'd arrive in a small ski village of Laison. Laison, as I said, is a small ski village. Uh, it has around 3,500 people, one post office, one bank, a small handful of grocery stores, and LES. So in terms of its campus, LES is composed of 12 buildings, which have a combination of dormitories, um, sports and arts facilities, event spaces, and classrooms, of course. It's not a closed campus, um, so there are no gates around it. To get from one building to the next, you would walk along the main road, which winds through the village. Um, so it has a very kind of open feel to it. Again, we're in the Alps, um, so whenever you look out from the buildings, you look onto a beautiful vista of mountains. Um, you can also kind of look over the valley below you. It's really idyllic, really picturesque setting, I would say. In terms of the architecture, it's very Swiss. Um, so LAS's main building, what's called the Belle Epoque, was built in the late 19th century as a sanatorium. Uh, the village was essentially a place where a lot of people went for tuberculosis cures at the time. 
And so the school still retains a lot of that architectural character. Um, so think huge sun-facing balconies, good circulation of the fresh mountain air, grand entryways. And then um, that cock train that I described, the last stop of that train is actually in the back of the school. It's sort of like a private entrance into the school. So the rich and famous could come and go from the sanatorium without being seen. Um, okay, so that's the physicality of the school. In terms of the students, LES educates around 330 young men and women from the ages of 12 to 18, um, and they come from about 40 different nationalities. It offers the International Baccalaureate and also the U.S. Um, high school degree. So despite its name, the Laison American School, it's really an international school, um, both in terms of its international curriculum and in terms of the students that are there. Those students um, are not only international, but they're also very, very wealthy. How much does it cost to go to LAS? Yeah, that's a great question. So LAS is reputedly one of the most expensive schools in the world. The annual fee for this last academic year, for the 2021 academic year, was 99,000 Swiss francs, um, which is about 80,000 pounds per year. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's crazy. And then there are annual expenses on top of that. So you have things like, you know, the health plan, sports equipment, school supplies, tutoring, uniforms, transfers to and from the airport, which all adds up to something like 120,000 um, Swiss francs per year, which is something like 95,000 pounds. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, the, the children that go to this school must come from families that are extremely wealthy. Extremely wealthy. Yes, um, that's what we're talking about. And um, so this may seem shocking. Um, it was certainly shocking to me. Um, but what's perhaps even more shocking is that this is actually rather typical of Swiss boarding schools. Um, so if you Google something like the most expensive schools in the world, usually the top 10 or so are all in Switzerland. So this is, um, yeah, this is typical of the region that LES is in. Why is that though? Why does... Switzerland have such a high number of expensive schools? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, so I think part of it is that this is the reputation that has come to be there um, so that schools can get away with charging more and more because they're all doing it. And because this label of Swiss boarding school has come to mean something, and particularly it's come to mean something to wealthy families all over the world. And they tend to see Switzerland as a place where they can send their children because it's stable, um, it's safe, it's perhaps a little bit boring. You know, it comes with this sense of, you know, I can send my child there and they will be fine. And they can send their money there. Um, so it tends to be a way to start moving their children and their money out of other places of the world into a safe democratic location where they can then kind of springboard onto the next location. Right. And and Swiss banking laws, if I understand it, are a bit, they allow for secrecy, which perhaps the super wealthy want. Yeah. So that's actually starting to be dismantled. So I think starting in 2018, the Banking Secrecy Act was starting to get dismantled under international pressure. Um, but Switzerland still certainly has that um, reputation. And prior to 2018, there was very strict um, Swiss secrecy laws. So yes, this is certainly part of the story. Yeah, right. You can you can move your money there and your children, and it's all sort of safe and secret. Exactly. <laughs> and who doesn't love the elves? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it sounds absolutely beautiful. I mean, so you you worked at this school. Can you tell us a little bit about what your job was? 
Yes. Um, so I work there as a college guidance counselor, which means that I help graduating students with their college applications. But this being a boarding school, I also lived in the girls' dorm or one of the girls' dorms and was responsible for looking after those girls one night a week and on some of the weekends. I also chaperoned school trips and events, went to student performances and sports games. I was basically, you know, a member of the community. So when in your time there, like, how would you describe a typical day for one of these 100 or 330 students, which, which seems like a rather small group of students to be, you know, in high school, more or less? Yeah, it is a rather small group, I would say. Um, very personalized attention that they received. <laughs> um, so a typical day for a student would essentially be um, they would wake up in the morning. As I said, it's a boarding school, so they're all living in dormitories. The dormitories are single sex. Um, they're usually two to four students per room. So they would wake up in the morning, probably, you know, say hi to their roommates, get ready for the day, get into their uniforms. All students wear uniforms. The uniforms can, of course, be accessorized. Um, So often girls would wear very nice Cartier jewelry, have very nice Burberry scarves, you know, designer, let's say, Chanel handbags, which is um, a lovely sight, but also a little bit funny when you think about these students being educated in the Swiss Alps. (laughs) Um, they would get ready for the day. They would have to tidy their rooms. Uh, they could get in trouble if their bed wasn't made or if their room was too messy. And then they would go up to class. Classes would run until the mid-afternoon. There would be a break for lunch, obviously. And then after classes, there would be extracurricular activities. So things like sports or performance activities, community service, etc. They would then have dinner um, either in the cafeteria or they could go into the village for dinner. And then they'd have to check back into the dormitories at a particular time. At that point, they would have study hall, which is um, hypothetically when they would get their homework done. And then after that, they'd have free time to essentially wind down, hang out with each other, catch up before then going to bed. In the winter, the schedule changes a little bit um, because, as I said, this is a ski village. So Tuesdays and Thursdays would be half days. Uh, There would be classes in the morning and then skiing time in the afternoons. Wow, how refined and nice. And so do all 330 students live on campus? Do they all dorm? Yes, they all dorm. Um, There are technically a few exceptions, which would be basically the students of staff members who then live with their parents. um, And then technically they're not kind of in the dorms, although a lot of times their parents live in the dorms. And so they're anyway living in the dorms just with their parents. Right. Okay. And does the school offer scholarships? Like, are there students that do not come from families of the super wealthy there? There are. There are a few. There are not very many. Um, So typically there would be something like two scholarship students per year group. I would say those students, um, some of them would come from poor areas, I think you could say. Um, So for example, there's a student who came from essentially a farming community um, in Southeast Asia. So that was clearly a not very well-resourced student. But then there are other students who would come from what I would more consider kind of global middle class standing um, from families who wouldn't have enough money to send their child to LES, but weren't necessarily like out of resources. Um, But the scholarship students, I think, 
from the interviews that I had with scholarship students, I would say that they had a difficult time socially at LAS. A lot of socialization revolved around activities that cost something. Um, so going out to eat, for example, in Switzerland, it's incredibly expensive to go out to eat. And students were typically doing this maybe on a nightly basis. And scholarship students just can't keep up with that. Also, for example, students could travel on the weekends. And so for a lot of students, that meant, you know, just flying somewhere, sometimes taking their private plane somewhere and staying in a very expensive hotel for a weekend, which again, the scholarship students just can't, they can't afford that, which means that they were a lot of times left out of that kind of general social milieu. Um, so I think for them, their time at LAS was rather different than it was for students who could socialize with money. Right. There was a distinction between students based on, in a sense, class. Yes. And so you you said the name of the school is the uh, Lysen American School, but you were saying that there are students from many different nationalities. Can you give me a little bit of the history of why the school was founded and perhaps why the the word American is in the name of the actual school? Yeah, so it's a fascinating history. Um, so LAS was founded in 1961 by a man named Fred Ott, who was actually Swiss, um, but he immigrated to the U.S. at age 10 and then eventually returned to Switzerland in his 50s, which is when he then founded the school. In its early years, LAS was an American curriculum school that was designed for the sons and daughters of overseas Americans. It was essentially um, kind of positioned in the intersection of American foreign policy and education, which was very much informed at the time by Cold War interests. So if we think about the early 1960s, that was basically the, um, the reigning discourse. This was all about the Cold War at the time. So essentially the question of how it came to be that LAS ended up as LAS in Switzerland is sort of complicated. But essentially, Fred, LAS's founder, um, he was born in the German-speaking part of Switzerland in 1914. Then when he emigrated to the U.S., um, he eventually earned a university degree in Germanistics and philosophy. This is important because it means that then when World War II broke out, Fred was a German speaker and scholar in the U.S. Um, and he was apparently asked by his boss at the time whether he was a communist or a Nazi. Um, and he was told that they worried about him in the community. So you really got the sense that this was a really difficult background to have at that time in the U.S. In 1944, he was then drafted into the war. He was first assigned to a prisoner of war camp in the U.S. for captured German troops. And then he was transferred to the Office of Military Government for Germany. So basically in the span of just a few years, he was a native German speaker first in, in America at war and then in the U.S. Armed Forces in Germany. So yeah, this again was like a very complicated identity to have, one can imagine. And it gives context to the identity that he then really constructed and maintained throughout the rest of his life, which you see in all of the documents um, which is basically that he constructed an identity as a very outwardly patriotic American, which again, given this background, makes a lot of sense. And that helps piece together why he would open an American school in his home country, of Switzerland, and even more interestingly, why he really connected it to American Cold War interests. So again, from the historical documents, you can see that LES was originally marketed to um, what C. Wright Mills at the time called the power elite. And so these were the 
corporate officers, the statesmen, and the military leaders who were connected to Cold War interests. That were happened to live in Switzerland. Yeah, so at the time, the students um, were American students, but they lived all over the world. So not necessarily in Switzerland. Um, they, a lot of times, were yeah posted in Europe, um, but also a lot of times were essentially anywhere in the world looking for an American school abroad. So in a sense, it has always historically been for the elite sort of class in the world and you know just so happened in the beginning to be focused on sort of an american elite class exactly and so were fees always high like you know when i hear ninety thousand pounds or something now i think that's astronomical was it you know astronomically high back in the 60s and 70s interestingly no um so in the beginning the price was it was still high but it was rather comparable to what you would imagine the american boarding schools to charge um, so it was, it kind of positioned itself with those kinds of schools, with the regular American boarding schools, just happened to be abroad. And over time, it shifted, um, which is also an interesting story. <laughs> uh, basically, the, um, so the Cold War essentially morphed into international capitalism. So by the 1970s, the U.S. was losing geopolitical power, but pursuing economic unilateralism that eventually helped it become the financial leader of the capitalist world. And as this shift was happening, LES was handed down from father to son. And then that next generation of leadership slowly reoriented the school from an American elite to a global financial elite, which was essentially a strategic response to this changing landscape. So when did you start seeing this change away from sort of the American elite to this sort of transnational elite? So it started slowly happening in the 1980s, um, which is essentially when neoliberalism was starting to take hold. Then I would say after uh, 1991, uh, when countries were starting to open up and starting to liberalize trade, um, that was when LES like really committed itself to this sense of becoming international and to bringing in students, particularly from what were then the post-Soviet countries, um, with families who had money who were looking to essentially move out of those countries. And so today, what how would you describe the demographics? You said that it was very multinational, but do you have you know, better statistics on you know what the actual demographics are of the school in terms of nationality? Yeah. So um, by 2011, which is essentially when my uh, historical work on the school kind of ended, um, LES was 12% American, which, you know, earlier it was something like 98% American for thinking about the 1960s and 1970s. So this is a huge shift. Even more interesting is that Americans were at that point the second largest group behind Russians who were at the time 14% of the student body. And so if you think of a school that was originally designed to serve the American Cold War, this is quite a change. Um, it's not dominated by any one particular nationality, not even close. So the top five nationalities in order are Russian, American, Chinese, Mexican, and Brazilian. And those five constitute only 52% of the student body. That's pretty unique for elite schools. Um, so elite schools are often tasked with basically creating the future elite of a particular country, usually the country in which that elite school is housed. LES then is rather a different kind of elite school because it's not, you know, producing the future elite of any one particular country, but really looking then at bringing an international cross-section of the elite together and then 
you know, kind of hypothetically then launching them into an even more globally mobile future. Let's talk a little bit about the student futures, because that's an interesting sort of phenomenon to think through. And I know your your research has actually looked at this specifically. So how do LAS students who are multinational, who are, you know, aside from the few scholarship students, are from families at the absolute top wealthy elite globally, how do these students even begin to understand and perceive their futures? That's a great question. I would say in general, the students envision their futures as part of the globally mobile elite um, and they really saw each other as facilitating that future. So I can give the example of um, Tanya who's a student and all of these names are pseudonyms. Um, she basically told me that LAS allowed her to cultivate global business networks through her classmates. So she felt like she had more in common with the other international wealthy young people at the school than with people who were still in her home country but who didn't share the same economic background. So she essentially saw LAS as a springboard to a globally mobile future because it allowed her to build these connections with similarly wealthy peers. Um, but I would say that although LAS advertises creating citizens of the world, this is part of their motto, the students seem to interpret this sense of global mobility rather narrowly. Um, so they focused on moving to the English-speaking global north, particularly to the US or the UK, because of the association that those countries have with essentially global status and therefore also with the maintenance of their elite status. And it gets complicated because that association with global status is, of course, a legacy of British colonialism on the one hand, and also, as I discussed earlier, the U.S.'s shift from leading the Cold War to essentially leading the capitalist world. So in many ways, how these students envision their future can be seen as reinforcing the global flows of power that kind of led to their elite status in the first place, rather than reflecting the sense of true global mobility, which I think is what the school tends to advertise um, and maybe also would want these students to really take on. Yeah, it's fascinating given the historical context in which this school was founded. In many ways, it is achieving the original intent of the school, right? To, to sort of to train or to keep the American elite, in a sense, at that pinnacle. And now even though the nationalities might be different of these students, they still are desiring that sort of American or UK sort of status and eliteness in a way. And so in many ways, that history is, as you say, sort of driving present, even though they have a motto that is slightly different and perhaps has a different intention. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's an excellent point. And so, I mean, so there's the motto of creating world citizens or citizens of the world. But does LAS do anything that actually shapes these students' sort of perceptions of the future and their sort of perceptions of being in an elite class other than, say, the networks that, that students create, you know, during their time there, the dinners they go to in the evenings? I mean, you know, how else does LAS actually shape these perceptions? Yeah, so I would say, interestingly, um, which is not what I would have expected, I think LAS really um, takes sort of a laissez-faire approach to the whole thing. So the school is, of course, bringing these students together under one roof, which does a lot in itself to kind of cultivate these networks and to get students thinking about mobile futures. Also in its marketing materials, you can see that this is something that they emphasize. They talk about alumni traveling all over the world. Um, they use synonyms for the world over and over, like 
the whole planet, the world, every continent. You know, they try to find every different way you can say this and use that in their marketing materials. Um, but I think on the ground, the reality is that the students are really kind of left to themselves to think about what this means for them and how they connect to each other and how they want to move forward. I will say, though, that um, as you mentioned very astutely, um, the fact that it is an American school in name and also that a lot of the school structure is still American. So basically the class scheduling is very American. There's a GPA system, which is very American, a great point average system. There were things like um, prom, senior skip day, lots of American traditions that found their way into the school. And so in that way, I think LAS in some ways brings students together from around the world and in other ways emphasizes the sense of being national and the sense of having an affiliation with a particular nation. And my feeling is that students understood that to mean that they can also then be national in their own ways. And and that, you know, if this school can be an American school, I can retain my affiliation with my nation because that's essentially acceptable here. This is not truly an international space. This is a space where international people come together to be educated in a particular way. That's quite fascinating. So what you're saying in a sense is that this multinational student body that's coming into this school that is supposed to be about creating globally mobile elite is actually also at the same time sort of reinforcing national identity from which those students come from. So can you tell me a little like how does that how, what sort of conceptions of national identity and patriotism to one's nation did you sort of uncover from some of these students? Yeah, so I think that's a really interesting question. And I think an interesting finding that came out of this work that I was doing. So students, as I said, um, they were becoming very nationalistic. And I say becoming because a lot of them told me that it was at LAS that they felt like, oh yeah, I really am American or whatever it might be. And I think it's because these students were confronted with national diversity and then they see that they are not like someone from another place. They are like people from their place, whatever that place might be. And then the sense of nationalism really informed how these students would interact with each other. So for example, it would influence their friend groups in really stark ways. The friend groups were often defined by nationalities or even more so by language groups. In some ways, this is understandable because especially as a teenager, you feel more comfortable speaking your own language. Maybe you feel more comfortable with people who are like you. But for a school that um, relies on being international and relies on this sense of creating citizens of the world for its marketing, you would think that this um, kind of homogeny would not necessarily be so prevalent in that kind of space. But the friend groups were then used to signal how a student position themselves. And this was often taken to mean in geopolitical ways. So an example is a Chinese student who told me that another student who was from Hong Kong wasn't respecting his Chinese identity because he was in the British social group at LAS. Never mind that that student also had a UK passport um, and also had ties to the UK. So in a lot of ways, the students were positioning both themselves and each other according to these geopolitics at the same time that they were meant to becoming, um, they were meant to become so-called citizens of the world. 
And I mean, it seems like in a way they're both, right? It's sort of cultivating a particular national identity that to some extent is is rather superficial in you know it's sort of it, it's it's being created because it's being defined in relation to the other students and perhaps if they went to a different school it actually would look you know their national identity would look potentially different and at the same time they're sort of being shaped into this global elite class that actually shares a lot of similarities despite their perceived national differences. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way of understanding it. Um, and I think that when we say becoming citizens of the world, I think, you know, this is a term that's thrown around a lot and that has become sort of a buzzword. And basically every international school refers to creating citizens of the world. But I think what we see when you really talk to the students is that they are becoming citizens, but in a globalized world and particularly in a globalized economic world. And so I think it's not necessarily mutually exclusive. I think that these students can be nationalistic at the same time that they are looking at globally mobile futures. And that becoming globally mobile doesn't necessarily mean that you don't consider yourself to be part of a particular country or that you don't carry with you the resonances of geopolitics that you've probably grown up with. So I think these two things are interconnected. Yeah, they, they sort of, they seem to be in tension, but they exist simultaneously. Yeah, exactly. And so what does some of this research you've been doing on LAS sort of tell us about the idea of a transnational capitalist class, which has become an idea that we're seeing more and more, and particularly in connection to sort of elite schooling as partly forming the transnational capitalist class. What what does your research, in a sense, say about this class formation? Yeah, so the literature basically says that forming a transnational elite class requires um, shared interests, and those shared interests are often in mobility, global opportunities, wealth accumulation on a global scale, which then give rise to a sense of class commonality. And I think the case of LES shows that these shared interests can also coexist with real power relations that are enacted within an elite group. Um, and that that then also has effects in terms of whether you can consider this a social class um, or whether this is rather just a group of young people who share some interests but don't really share this sense of commonality. And so basically what this means is that probably different kinds of elite schools fill different kinds of roles when it comes to transnational class formation. And probably some schools are engaging with these processes in some moments but not other moments. And that when schools serve a national elite, um, they might function in a different way than schools like LAS that serve the cross-section of the international elite, which essentially just means that I think what this research shows is that it's very complex and it's multifaceted and that I think we probably need a lot more research in this area because I think it's a fascinating area and one that has a lot of layers to it. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's so fascinating because it does reflect particular histories. It does reflect particular moments of sort of economic and political power. And this gets reflected in these elite schools. And like you're saying, in different ways, depending on what type of elite school. And I, it's just such a fascinating topic to sort of read through a lot of these much larger processes at work across the globe. So Karen Lilly, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It's just was an absolute pleasure to talk today and best of luck with your postdoc. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Mm-hmm. 
Karen Lilly will soon be a postdoctoral researcher at the Max Planck Institute for the Study of Societies in Cologne, Germany. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on FreshEd are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not FreshEd, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. FreshEd's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Akhtas, Ing Jung Cho, Obafemi Ngunle, Dian Jiang, Annabella Afro-Boteng, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Today marks Lushik Waba's last day working with FreshEd. Thanks, Lushik, for four years of incredible work. We know your future is bright. Original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. FreshEd is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, the ShockDev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to FreshEd by visiting freshheadpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.